Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Hey, just want to let the junior hires know that your classes, uh, you're dismissed to go to your class. So if you're in junior high and you're in the room, get out of here. <laughs> no, you guys are dismissed to your class. So you can go ahead and take off. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this the other day that uh, children don't really like understand the concept of time very well, do they? Like I remember whenever I was a little kid and it's like you learn how to like tell time with the hands and you know all that stuff but like the concept of like the passage of time like it takes a while to get it and like I mean there's some of you who are adults in the room and you're like I still don't really get it <laughs> like I still don't get the passage of time and so because I remember like driving up to it's funny because I grew up in Olney and sometimes either to go out to eat or to go shopping or whatever we would drive up to this place called Effingham city with a really weird name and, you know, of course, 45-minute drive or so. And, of course, I'm like, I'm bored. Are we there yet? And I just, like, oh, soon, soon. No, it's going to be about an hour, and I don't know what that means. Like, don't fully get, understand the passage of time. Uh, even though they told me, I still don't necessarily get it. And now I'm beginning to reap some of the damage I did on my parents. You know, our God is a just God. He repays. And so now I'm beginning to experience the same things that I inflicted on my parents. Like, which is funny because, like, we go down to only a lot to see my parents. And they kind of know roughly how long it is, sort of. Like, they know Newton. Hey, Newton Campus, good to see you. Uh, they know Newton, so whenever they go through, they always want us to point out the minions that are along the highway. If you've ever gone through Newton, they love seeing the minions. And so they'll always ask, like, are, are we in, uh, you know, are we in Newton yet? Are we in Olney yet? Or when we're coming back the other way, which... I've, I've saved this bullet for a while. It's one I've been wanting to shoot for a while. That It's just like the best thing ever. Do you know what my kids call the town we live in? They call it Ham. <laughs> like I have corrected them. Like it's not an intentional thing, I promise. Like I have corrected them so many times because I remember like a few years back, we're like driving to one of the parades downtown and we had the windows rolled down because the weather was really nice. And like Lissy, my daughter's like, yay, F you ham. And I'm like, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> so we're working on the names of cities. I don't know why it's just, man, it can't be corrected. But anyway, uh, but yeah, so this is how, we, so we've had to shape the way we talk about news coming up. Uh, for our kids, like whenever there, something's going to happen. Because back in our rookie years of parenting, uh, we would tell our kids about things coming up like weeks out, like that we're, they're going to stay the night at my parents' house or something like that. And then they will ask us about it 57 million times, like multiple times a day, every day leading up to it. And so we've learned from our mistakes since then. And so now we usually don't tell our kids about plans coming up till about 15 minutes before it happens. Like there are some times where it's literally like my, I see my mom pulling up in the driveway and I'm like, oh yeah, by the way, girls, you're staying the night with Nana. And they just like start freaking out. It's like, we just can't tell them any earlier or we will not get any peace because they will ask us about it over and over and over again. And then it's the same thing like when we're driving out to Virginia and you know, it's a, when, when we have driven out there, I mean, it's a 15 hour drive. And so they're just asking over and are we there yet? Are we at Granite's house? Are we at Granite's house? And I finally, which I know I shouldn't do this, but I can't help myself. Like I just get sick of it. And so I'm finally like, yep, we're here. Go ahead and jump out. And they're like, they're like looking out the window and we're going like 80 miles an hour down the interstate. And then the last guy, are we there yet? I'm like, yep, we're there. Go ahead and jump out. And then they like look at the window and I'm like, how are they not? They're still asking me over and over again. I'm like, I think they would like, sarcasm is probably not a good way to parent. So I need to, the Lord's doing work in me. Now, we laugh at this dynamic with our children, but we're like this with God. You know that, right? Like, we do this all the time. 
Because like we know some, we are anticipating something coming up in our lives, some big event, big thing, or we're hoping something is going to happen. You know, you're waiting to hear back about a job or you're waiting to, you know, hoping to start a family or you're waiting to hear from that college that was your first choice. And you're just like, and you just pester God about it over and over again. It's like you just, the, you, and you almost try to like make things happen. You almost try to force your way through it over and over and over again. And so, uh, you know, I, I wonder sometimes if this is why God doesn't reveal more about the future for us. We talked about this a little bit last week when I was talking about the leading of the Holy Spirit, that there's almost a formational element to us uh, not knowing everything that's going to happen. And if we knew really far out everything that was going to happen, it would almost paralyze us with fear because we would see the bad things coming as well. Um, but, you know, I think we, we sometimes struggle. It's, it's almost a symbol of a lack of trust for us to not be able to be like, okay, God, I trust you. I don't have to know exactly what's going to happen or when it's going to play out or how it's going to happen. Like, I trust you that you're going to roll it out exactly how you're supposed to roll it out. And the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because we're actually starting a new series today called Moses. So we're going to be spending, you know, probably a good month, month and a half going through key stories in the life of Abraham, right? No, guys, Moses. It's it's in the name. Anyway, I thought that would be clear. I guess it wasn't. But no, we're looking at, you know, Moses' life is a powerful example for us today. But I want to be, care- I want to be careful how I say that because Moses' life is a powerful example, not because he was this great, amazing person that we should all aspire to be, but rather he's a great example for us because he is just as broken and messed up as we are and yet learned to trust and love the Lord and follow his leading all the days of his life and giving us an example of how we're supposed to relate to the Lord uh, uh, also. And the scriptures talk about how Moses' life was in, in a sense a foreshadowing of the covenant that was to come, that many of the things that he experienced and went through, the life and ministry of Jesus ended up being almost uh, the fulfillment of those things. And so we're going to spend the next month, month and a half, unpacking some key stories in the life of Moses. And so uh, I'm going to talk through just a little bit of kind of the first little epic of Moses' life, focusing in on one particular story, and there's a a theme that I kind of want to look at. So today I'm going to be kind of going from the basket, his birth, to the burning bush, okay? So I'm going to cover just a few first couple chapters in the book of Exodus. So Moses' story, it starts out really interesting because the Hebrew people have been in slavery for a little over 400 years. And I mean, things were bad. Like it started out good. They went down to Egypt because of a famine in the Middle East. And things were going well because one of their people was in power there. But then as they forgot who Joseph was, uh, things began to get really bad and they began to be enslaved and mistreated. And so many generations has passed since then. And so they're, they're crying out to God for help because now the Egyptians, like the Hebrews have become such a problem for the Egyptians that now they have begun to pass edicts to kill their children, that the young male boys were supposed to be thrown in the Nile. So we see that even 6,000 years before our time, killing the unborn or the newly born has always been an evil that is present in the world. And it was that way at the beginning of Moses's story. So God help every nation, no matter what time period is, that promotes policies that threaten life, innocent life, for the sake of power and control. Anyway, so Moses... Whenever his mom finds out, like, oh, I'm going to have to throw him in the Nile. Like, I'm literally going to have to kill this child. And so then she's like, well, I know what I'll do. 
And so she actually, like, makes a basket, like, covers it with, you know, various things. Like, uh, Exodus 2, uh, verse 3 actually kind of explains what happens. I'll just go ahead and read it. It says, but when she could hide him no longer, so she kind of hid him away for, like, the first three months, but then, you know, they start to move, start to make more noise, that type of thing. She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And so it's funny because in a way she did do what she had been asked to do. She did throw her child in the Nile. She just did it in a way that saved his life. So she put him in this basket, threw him there, and then kind of, you know, Moses' sister is kind of watching to see what happens. And so the daughter of Pharaoh ends up finding this child and decides, hey, I'm actually going to keep him and raise him, but he's not fully weaned yet. So uh, is there, are there any among the Hebrew women who can, you know, care for this child until he's weaned? And then Moses' mom is like, I'll do it. And so she ends up actually, Moses' mother gets paid to take care of her own son. It's just kind of genius the way that this works out. But you almost have to wonder, like, as Moses begins to grow up, you can imagine him hearing this story, the story of his miraculous salvation and how he gets thrown into the Nile but then gets rescued out. And you have to almost kind of wonder if this was a defining moment for him, like a moment that would be told to him over and over again, that he would be kind of be told, which, I mean, there are some of you that maybe had a miraculous moment in your life, like you almost died at birth, but then you survived, people prayed and you lived, or you almost got hit by a car or, you know, something like that. And so that story is told to you over and over again. And people will usually respond to that and say like, man, God must have a, a big call on your life. The fact that that miraculous thing happened, God must have a big call on your life. And so you can imagine Moses being told this over and over again. In fact, so much so that his name, Moses, literally means to draw out. Like he was named after the event. That's how significant it was for him. So he knew in some ways that he was called to a different and greater life than the Egyptians around him. So much so that it likely shaped his future, how he would respond to situations. And so we see this begin to take place in Exodus 2 verse 11. It says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, And watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but, uh, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to fill their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to the rescue and watered their flock. Now, there's so much here that I think informs, you know, we see the formation that has uh, occurred in Moses because knowing he had some sort of great destiny to fill, we see almost in the way Moses responds to things, he has a little bit of a savior complex. You notice that? He tries to save his fellow Hebrew from an Egyptian slave master. And what happens? He ends up being guilty of not just murder, 
but miscarriage of justice because he hides the body. He tries to hide what he did. And then he sees two Hebrews fighting and he's like, guys, like, what's going on? Like, let's figure this out together. And they're like, what, you're going to kill me too? And he's like, oh boy. Like, I, I, I think I'm known now. Like, I think what I did has gotten out. And so he just ends up fleeing to the desert for 40 years. Now, of course, even as, as soon as he gets into the desert, he gets to this well, and there are these shepherds kind of harassing these women. And what does he do in his savior complex? He's like, hey, you know, stop that. And he steps up and saves them as well. That He knew probably in a sense very strongly in his heart from all the stories that had been told him that he had a call in his life to lead and to help. And he was doing everything he could to live that out, to make something happen. And here's the funny thing about this story is Moses would be called to save the Israelites from the Egyptians. He really would be called to be ruler and judge over them. He really was a redeemer and a rescuer of sorts. But here's the thing that Moses had not learned yet in his life is that there is a big difference between willingness and readiness. Moses was willing. He wanted to help his people. He wanted to rescue them. He wanted to offer wisdom and discernment, solve their problems and improve the life of the nation. But he was not ready yet. It was not time. See, I think this is one of the hardest things for any of us to learn in the spiritual life, the difference between willingness and readiness. I may know that God has a call in my life. I may be willing to step out and do whatever I can to make that thing happen. But the truth is, I may not be ready yet. I may be willing. I want it to happen, but I'm not ready. That God has to maybe form some things in me before it's time. See, you may be willing to date and get married immediately after a failed marriage. And I've had this conversation with many people who they're, you know, single again for whatever reason. And just immediately they want to start dating again. And I tell them like, no, like it's not a good idea. I would wait at least a year. Now, of course, people say, well, like why a year? What's so significant in a year? I'm like, because when I say three years, no one will listen to me. So I just meet somewhere in the middle. But it's like, no, there needs to be time to be ready. There's a wound there. Oftentimes to knee-jerk date immediately after such a significant relationship ends is often trying to fill a void that only the Lord can fill and that there needs to be a readiness that needs to be there first. In fact, there's a term in the military known as combat readiness. For those of you who serve in the military, you know what I'm talking about. See, it's the military's ability and swiftness to go into combat at a moment's notice. But see, here's the, the thing. About a new recruit going into basic training, there is no combat readiness there. They may be willing. They may be ready to go serve their country and lay down their life and do whatever it takes. But anybody who has been in the military for a while knows that a raw recruit is in no way ready to go into combat. They've not received the training the preparation necessary to do what it takes to serve their country in that way. Yet, see, we, just like Moses, we sometimes have to learn that our current challenges are preparing us for God's future plans. And he's going to take however long is necessary to make sure that we're ready. Now, usually I try to share stories from my own life uh, to kind of illustrate things I'm talking about and Usually how I pick the stories is, which I, ah, just, I, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to tell the story because it's frankly kind of embarrassing, but usually what the filter I think through is like, okay, what's the most painful story that I can tell? 
And then I tell that one, not because I'm, I'm a sadist uh, that I love inflicting pain on myself, but normally if it's painful, it's because it's the most applicable. It's the area of most formation for me. And when I think about the, like, the difference between willingness and re- readiness, I think a lot about my dating relationship like prior to being married because I was, ugh, I don't like telling this story. Um, for those of you who grew up in church, there was always that guy in the youth group who like dated like half the youth group. You know what I'm talking about? I was that guy. Not super proud about that, but I was. I was that guy. Um, and I don't know if it, I mean, I'm still doing reflection on that of like, what was, what was the compulsion where I always felt like I had to be in a relationship. I felt like I was somehow less valuable if I wasn't dating someone or wasn't with someone. And it took a long time for me to get to a, a self-awareness to recognize that. But I was that guy that dated like almost every girl in the youth group. And now it's, it has become a joke with me and Lindsay because for, for years, anytime we would go back to Olney and, uh, you know, go back to, uh, you know, like a service there or something like that, which a lot of them have married and moved off and stuff like that. But early on, on, like right after we got married, we'd go to my old home church and like, we're like walking around and meeting people. And Lindsay's like, did you date her? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> did you date her? Mm-hmm. What about her? Wait, no, no. Yeah, I did. I'm like, well, what about her? It's like, and she's like, wait, didn't you say you dated her sister? And I'm like, yes to both. <laughs> yeah. Like I was just that guy. I hated that. I was that guy, but I was that guy. And so See, I wanted to have a Christ-centered relationship. I wanted to be married. I wanted a Christ-centered relationship. I was willing, but I wasn't ready. There was uh, patterns there, insecurities there that I was actively living out in those relationships. And it's not that all of those relationships were just train wrecks, but it's like obviously none of them lasted. All of them fell apart at some point. And I can be that guy that it's like, it's always her fault. She always did something wrong, but it's like, well, somebody pointed out once they're like, well, you know, the only common denominator in all those failed relationships, right? Like I'm the one common factor in all of those. So like maybe I might want to take a look inward and realize that maybe I have my own baggage and things to deal with because I wasn't ready and neither was Moses. He rushed ahead of the plan of God and ended up causing more damage than good. In his arrogance, he thought he was ready to, you know, start a revolution and, you know, deliver the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery, but he only inflicted more harm, strife, and murder, and evil. And this was something Moses had to learn. And honestly, we need to hear in our own kind of American culture, our own can-do, fix-everything, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps-make-something-happen mentality. Because the truth is, in the spiritual life, our competency can actually sometimes hinder our ability to do God's will. Did you know that? Your competency can sometimes hinder you from doing God's will because in your competency, you think, I got it. I can figure it out. I can get it done myself. I've got the skill set to handle that. And so then no trust is put in God. I trust in my own abilities and my own strength. And then I end up inflicting more harm than good in the situation, whatever it is. See, we Assume we know all that we need to know about the what and the how and the why something should be done, especially around God's will. And we rush ahead like Moses did to accomplish something, but then we forget and we neglect the when. That's not just about the what, why, and how. It's also about the when, the timing. In our arrogance, we think we know, but then the failures that ensue 
show that the, act- the answer was actually no. And I think this is the great temptation of American Christianity is to run ahead of God in our pride, in our arrogance, in our certainty, in our, don't get me wrong, in our willingness, but in our unreadiness. We rush ahead thinking we're ready when we're really not. And so rushing ahead of God to liberate the Israelites landed Moses out in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years of just caring for sheep. But see, it took 40 years of him caring for sheep to learn, to have formed in him what it really meant to be a shepherd over God's people, Israel. It took 40 years of just working with sheep to find out what it really meant to be a shepherd. And so one day he's walking along and 40 years has passed and he's just living his life as a shepherd. And then he notices off the side of the path a burning bush bush that's on fire and it just keeps burning but it's not consumed and it's this strange sight and he's paying attention enough to go off the path and inquire about it and we see in Exodus 3 9 this conversation that he has with God when Moses is finally ready and look at this this is the conversation this is God saying to Moses and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me this is God saying this and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them so now now go I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And I love, notice Moses' response. And this is, you see the formation happen here. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So very different response than 40 years ago of just rushing ahead and making something happen. He's like, who am I that you would send me? And God said to him, I'll be with you. See, we see this, this change happen in Moses. Who am I that you would send me? Are you sure that I'm ready? He even later, if you read the story, he argues with God, but what about my speech impediment? And I'm not, I'm not good at talking. Like, I don't know what to, like, I don't know, I don't know if I can. But the Lord answers every single argument with, but I'll be with you. Oh, you can't speak well, but I'll be with you. Oh, you're scared? I'll be with you. Over and over and over again. Now, granted, the Lord could have been with him and was with him even 40 years earlier, but the difference was Moses was now ready for God to be with him. His character had been formed in the silence and solitude of the desert to prepare him to not trust in his own abilities, but to know that simply having God with him was more than enough. See, oftentimes our readiness to answer God's call has more to do. It doesn't have so much to do with our competency and has everything to do with our character. You may have had the skill set a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. You may have had all the tools you needed for a relationship to go well that long ago, but you may have not had the character to use those tools 10 years ago. See, it was hard for me to admit that the only common denominator in some of those toxic relationships of mine was me. And it took me years of experiencing that on and off to finally get to the point of like, you know what? I think I'm done. I don't think I'm going to date anymore. I'm just, and not out of pain, not out of protest, but just kind of, I need something formed in me before a relationship is going to go the distance, before it's not about meeting some need within me and me actually giving, because that's what real love and real covenant marriage is about, is it's self-giving love, not self-fulfillment. That's not the point of that. And so and I, I knew I wasn't there. 
And it's funny because like the moment I came to that realization, that was when I started working up at Willow Creek with a young, beautiful woman named Lindsay Martin, the woman who I, I would end up marrying. But it was funny because like the moment I met her, I knew I wasn't ready in the moment. Like I didn't even, because people will always ask us like, oh, like whenever you guys first met, like was it love at first sight? And I'm like, it was for her. <laughs> now that sounds super arrogant. This is what I mean by that. I'm kind of being truthful when I say that. What I mean by that was I was in such a place that I'm like, I can't do the relationship thing that when I met her, obviously she was a smoke show, like no doubt. But I knew like, I can't go there. Like, nope, not going to do that. I'm like, I just, I need, I need something formed in me before I would ever kind of do any kind of dating thing. And so we were friends for a long time before we actually started dating. And it's funny because everybody on our team like saw it and we're talking about it actively like behind our backs. And like, they're like calling that we're going to start dating and, and that we're going to get married and stuff like that. I'm like, why didn't you guys tell us? And they're like, oh, you weren't ready yet. You weren't yet ready yet to hear it. But finally it was where I began to realize like, okay, I think there's something real here. And I think, but I wanted to pursue it in a very different way than I ever had before. And so what I did was, and I'm, I'm just going to, for all the young people in here, I'm going to let out a little, uh, little secret that pe- a lot of people do in relationships is normally we're taught through social, social cues and past relationships to ration out the crazy. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you don't want to put all the cards on the table and let someone know how crazy you actually are, all the weird things about you. You play those cards one at a time. Like, okay, how'd she respond to that? Okay, now I can play this other. She was like, okay, now I can tell her that I love Star Wars. Like, okay, like, you know, one thing after another. Like, you got to play it. But I realized, like, I've played that out over and over again, and it's never worked. So maybe what I do is we, you know, we, I remember it was on her birthday was whenever we started dating. We sit down, have lunch together. And then it's like, basically I put all the cards on the table saying, these were all my past relationships. These were why they failed. These were the parts that I played in those relationships failing. These are my insecurities. These are the things that I struggle with. Blah. Like I just vomited my crazy all over. I'm like, do you still want to be with me? And it's crazy because she did the exact same thing. Lay down, and her, it was amazing how parallel our stories were together. She, she dealt with many of the same things, failed relationships, trying to use relationships to fill a need that really only God could fill. fill. And so we realized at the end of that, we're like, yeah, like you're my kind of crazy. You're like, all right, yeah, let's do this. And so we started dating, and then of course, the rest is history. Because I realized the difference was her was, it's like I loved the idea of getting married, but I realized with Lindsay, it wasn't about loving the idea of getting married. It was, I love the idea of marrying her. And if it wasn't her, then I didn't want to do it. That was the difference because I was finally ready. And see, that's the truth of it. Willingness isn't just about wanting to do the right thing. It's about wanting to do the right thing the right way at the right time. And that is often the hardest part. And that means that if I'm not ready yet, then I wait. I'm willing to push pause and wait until God says I'm ready, that I can check my knowledge, I can check my experience, I can check my arrogance at the door for God's better way of his kingdom. And Moses did that, and it led to the deliverance and exodus of the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery because he did the right thing in the right way at the right time. Now, speaking of time, Moses' story, like I said, is really just a shadow pointing to another story. Because there's a man named Jesus of Nazareth who 
lived a life without sin. And if anyone was the quintessence of willingness, even readiness, it was Jesus. If anyone could accomplish God's will, it was Christ. He was totally and completely in every way possible surrendered to the Father. And yet, if you look at his life, what do we see in his life? We see him living the first 30 years of his life as a carpenter, working a job, plying a trade, being a brother and a son, just living a normal life because he knew, living this life in total obscurity, he knew it wasn't time yet. And it wouldn't be until after spending 40 days in the wilderness, you see the parallel there? He finally said in Mark 1, 14, Mark 1, 14 and 15, it says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, Jesus uses, unsurprisingly, language of time in this text. Now, in the ancient world, the Greeks had two words that they used for time. The first word was chronos, which we use in words like chronological, anachronism, uh, chronometer. It refers to the measurement, uh, it refers to clock time that can be measured in seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and years. Now, that's the first word, whereas chronos is quantitative. The second word, which is the word that Jesus uses is here, kairos, is qualitative. See, it measures moments rather than seconds. It measures opportunity, not just the organization of time. It refers to the perfect moment when the world takes a breath and in its pause, before it exhales, fates can be altered, souls can be affected, destinies can be changed forever. See, chronos measures when you'll get up in the morning. Kairos measures why you get up in the morning. And so what Jesus was saying here was not, okay, guys, enough time has passed in history. Like, enough time has passed, so let's get the show on the road. The kingdom of God is going to, you know, finally pour out. No, he's saying, no, the, the opportune moment has finally come. The world is finally, it may have been willing for a long time. There are a lot of religious people that were very willing for God's kingdom to come. But I'm telling you that everything that's happened in the world, the world is now ready for the kingdom to come. And so today, I want us to think about this. I want us to pay attention to the areas of our lives in which God is trying to make us ready. Not just willing, not just open, but ready for what he wants to do in our lives. That might, might not look like you, what you want because the world back then was ready for the kingdom of God. Many of them were longing for God's kingdom to come, but they were not ready for a bloody cross and an empty tomb. They were not ready for that. And so many of them missed it. See, some of you are dealing with stuff right now where you're wondering, why is God not moving in my life the way I thought he would? Why is he not doing the things I hoped he would do? And you realize, like, I may be willing for God to move, but I'm not ready that he's forming something in me. And so what I want us to do is we're going to sing a song here at the end. And I actually want to invite, uh, as we sing, to uh, have our elders and pastors come up to pray for people. If you're in that place where you're like, I just, I feel like I'm not in a place to wait, to surrender, uh, that 
to have someone pray for me. We want to be here to do that. So will you guys stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to close out. We're just going to have a time of ministry where if you have a prayer request, if you need someone to lay hands on you and pray for you, we're going to have some of our leaders up here uh, to pray for you. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much. God, I thank you that your timing is perfect. That you move just when you're ready to, just when we are finally ready to, God. And we want to be sensitive to the movements of your spirit, to be open to what you're doing in our midst that we have, may have been striving for a very long time to make something happen in our lives, to force the will of God to change things in our lives. But the truth is, the way of the cross is not in trying, but in dying. God, help us to surrender to your perfect timing. So God, we offer our circumstances, whatever it is we're going through, we offer these up to you in the name of Jesus. So feel free to respond as you feel led. We'll be down here to pray with you.
morning. It's so good to see you today. If you would, let's stand together and worship God this morning.
articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry then from north to south and east to west we'd hear Christ be magnified and were the whole earth echoing his eminence his name would burst from sea and sky from rivers to the mountain tops we'd hear Christ be magnified come on let's sing it out Christ be magnified oh Christ be magnified let his praise arise Christ be magnified in me oh Christ be I'll be crucified with you Cause death is just the doorway Into resurrection life And if I join you in your sufferings Then I'll join you when you rise And when you return in glory With all the angels and the saints My heart will still be singing My song
thank you this morning for who Jesus is. That he alone is our salvation and our hope and our joy and our life. That comes from no other source but Jesus alone. God, I pray in those moments when we're tempted to look to other sources for life, that you would remind us that life is found in Jesus alone. I thank you that he came, he died, he rose again so that we can spend eternity with you. And we worship you this morning. We thank you for who you are and for inviting us into your kingdom today and for all eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. As you guys go ahead and take a seat, we'll dismiss our fourth through eighth graders to head to their classes. First of all, this morning, I want to wish all the fathers and father figures in the room a very happy Father's Day. So let's start by giving our fathers in the room a round of applause. Dads, we are so thankful for you, and we love you, and we want to honor you in a couple ways today here at the church. Out in the lobby, you may have seen a Slim Jim station, and if you didn't pick up your morning snack, then for the dads in the room, as you leave, be sure to grab something to munch on. Also, you may have seen out there that we have a Pit Boss Grill. We are really excited to be able to um, give a big prize today, later on today, to one of our dads, and the way that fathers can get... Um, get their names submitted to be eligible to potentially win that is by having a spouse or a child go to newhopechurch.cc slash dad and share a fun story or some kind words. And um, we have some that have already been submitted that we are super excited to share with you. They're very touching and some of them are kind of funny. Um, but we also want to let you guys know that you can submit stories up until 3 o'clock today. So if your dad is like, hey, did you nominate me? Then kids or wives take note um, that you have until 3 o'clock today, and then we'll share the winner of the grill later on this evening on Facebook and, and on Instagram. Like I said, we have several submissions, and here are a few of them. Cortland and Emma had this to say about their dad. My dad is awesome because he plays games with me. My dad is awesome because he tosses me high up in the water. This is what Kelsey shared about her dad, Brian. I think one of the best words to describe my dad is generous. He gives so much of himself without even having to be asked. If I or anyone needs a favor, needs a tool, or needs a little or a lot of his time, he never hesitates to put aside his own interest, interest to help someone. His generous heart shows just how much a father can love. He has been a role model for my husband, and we are, so, and we are both so lucky to call him dad. Krista also had this to share about Brian. There's that quote, when someone takes you on as their own, even when you're not biologically their own, I think it's really special. My stepdad didn't have to raise me. He wanted to. I always felt like I was my dad, Brian's kid. I was only six when mom and dad married. He ran me to sports, games, friends' houses, and loves me, my husband, and my children like his own. Although we started out a little unconventional with me being a child of divorce, I was fortunate to be blessed with two dads and a bunch of extra grandparents. I always thought I was lucky in that way. It takes a superhero to love and accept a child like his own, especially when the child has another dad too. I love you, Dad, and I'm so thankful you chose me. This is what Randy shared about her father. My dad has always shown me the importance of knowing and having a relationship with God. He has shown us how to rely on God in the good times and the bad. I've seen my dad go through some tough 
I've seen my dad go through some tough times and his faith remains strong through it all. He's taught me that even though people may fail us, God will never forsake us. Lauren and Carson had this to say about their dad. My dad is pretty cool, even if I don't want to admit it. He is funny and he's always making jokes to make me laugh. I really appreciate my dad and that he takes me hunting and fishing and he wants to spend time doing those fun things. So those were some pretty neat submissions that we had. And like I said, you have until three o'clock to go to newhopechurch.cc slash dad to share a funny story or some kind words. And we'll be doing that drawing for the grill later on this evening. We have one other announcement that I want to share with you today, and it's kind of related to parenting. For the past several years, Emily Golden has served as faithfully as our babies through preschool coordinator. And as she and Lucas get ready to welcome golden baby number three to their family, they have made the decision that she needs to be home full time, that they, that's what they feel like God is leading them towards. And so we're super happy for them. And we know that that's a God honoring decision. We're a little bit sad for us because she really is a tremendous addition to the kids staff. Having said that, we, um, with her upcoming departure from our team, we would like to um, start receiving applications for a part-time Babies Through Preschool coordinator. You can read more about that, and you can apply online at newhopechurch.cc jobs. Thank you so much. Good morning, and welcome to New Hope. Whether you're joining us on campus or worshiping with us online, we are so thankful that you've chosen to spend part of your weekend here with us. And if you're new to New Hope, we'd love to hear from you. You can fill out a Connect card in the New Hope app or by visiting newhopechurch.cc slash connectcard. You can also stop by the Connect Center after service. We'd love to meet you and answer any questions you might have. We are currently looking for new volunteers who are willing to commit to kids. As we continue to return to normal, we're seeing more kids return on Sundays, which is incredible. However, since COVID-19, we've seen a decrease in volunteers. In order to continue offering New Hope kids on Sundays and not turn any families away, we need more volunteers. We would love for you to prayerfully consider joining the kids team and having a hand in furthering our vision to see a greater movement of Jesus in each new generation. You can learn more about Commit to Kids and sign up to serve at newhopechurch.cc slash commit to kids. Lastly, we want to take a moment to continue in worship through the giving of our tithes and offering. It's because of your faithful generosity that we are able to reach even more people in our communities and further our vision of seeing a greater movement of Jesus in each new generation. While we aren't passing a bucket in person, you can give in the back of the auditorium, online at newhopechurch.cc give or by mail. Thank you so much for joining us for service and be sure to connect with us at newhopechurch.cc and on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date with everything happening here at New Hope.
is real I say the struggle reveals how you deal with the monster that's inside you I don't buy into the luck I put my faith in my trust in my team everything that we done been through ah, gasoline in my veins be the fuel through my pain oh, ah, as we rise rise from the flames Yeah. Guys, I got to tell you, because the Engage conference was this weekend, all day Friday, all day Saturday, and I got to be there for most of it. And oh my gosh, 80 students were, I think a little over 80 students were a part of this. It was unbelievable. So cool. In fact, uh, one of the service projects that we got to do yesterday, uh, I ended up driving six junior high girls around. So I don't know if they like sensed the girl dad vibe on me. Like they knew that I just had daughters because like, because we were serving in some place and you had to like fill out this waiver thing. And of course, if you're under 16, which like all of them were, uh, you had to have like a parent or guardian. And so there was one girl where she's like, Pastor Tyler, will you be my dad? I'm like, I will. I will parent you so hard. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, like, sorry, Lindsay, we have like six more girls now. So there's like eight, eight girls in the house uh, and all junior hires. So I'll be dead by the end of the week. But no, it was so, so amazing. Uh, the staff involved, the volunteers involved, which were like operating at staff level. Uh, just so, so thankful for so many people who care so much about the next generation. Uh, it was the best thing ever. I wish so much that I had something like that whenever I was in high school. Um, I'm very thankful for the youth program that I was a part of, but nothing at all at the caliber like Engage was. And so uh, super excited to hang out with all of you guys uh, this weekend. So very, very cool. So uh, let's give the staff and the volunteers a hand who are a part of making that happen. Whoa, just so, so good. 
Because a big thing that they focused on at the Engage conference was about, I mean, just fully surrendering your life over to God. And then once you do that, you realize that God hasn't just saved you from something, that he saved you to something as well, that he saved you to purpose and to destiny and to, you know, all kinds of amazing things that he's going to do in your life. And so they were learning, kind of unlocking, uh, figuring out what their gifts were and how God had wired them and how they uniquely can use that in this world for God's glory. And so, man, it's just so powerful to realize, man, when you engage in your relationship with God, uh, entering into a relationship with Jesus isn't the end, it's just the beginning. It's the beginning of this whole new life, and so uh, they're getting to experience that in so many different ways. And so, uh, anyway, super excited to be a part of that. Oh yeah, happy Father's Day, by the way. I realize I need to put on uh, the bracelet that my girls got for me. So this is my preaching bracelet. It matches my shirt, so go ahead and get powered up for that. It's got a rainbow on it, so it just, you know, girl dad. Anyway, so we are in this series that we've been doing for the past few weeks called Moses. And of course, it's about Noah. No, kidding. It's about Moses. Uh, we're looking through the life of Moses. And uh, it's interesting because even what I want to talk about today, uh, you know, kind of crosses over a little bit into what was talked about in Engage because uh, we're at a very pivotal story uh, where the, you know, we talked about Moses' call from the burning bush. And we talked about the exodus from Egypt and the uh, the... Uh, the plagues that were poured out in Egypt and then being delivered out of slavery. And so now where we pick up in the story is just a few months after being delivered out of Egypt and they're wandering in the desert, wondering what is next, wondering what, we, we know what we were saved from, but what are we saved to? Like what have we been delivered out of slavery for? And so now they're going to get a taste of that because they end up in the story uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they find out really quick that this relationship that they're about to enter into with God uh, is not quite what they thought it was going to be. Because I think with religion, we can have a certain idea, you know. Some of the most important relationships we have in life, sometimes we can misunderstand the purpose of them and the point of them. And it can cause us to live particular ways that aren't necessarily healthy. Like, I remember... uh, you know, we all, some of the most important moments in our life, we can be very excited about them, but also be very scared about them. Because I was thinking the other day about uh, the day that I got married. You know, I was just very aware from like a Christian perspective of like, I'm entering into this covenant of marriage with this other person. And it's like, it's going to change everything because it's two becoming one. And it's like, it's just going to completely alter both of our lives. And so I was just very aware of that, like on the wedding day. And of course, hadn't seen Lindsay all day. And so she was getting ready to walk down the aisle. And I was just like, tell myself, like, not going to cry. Not going to do it. Like, I want to be that guy that has like the like smoldering look on his face. Like when the girl's like walking down the aisle, I just, I'm not a smoldering guy. Some of you know that about me. There are some smoldering people, and I know them, but I'm not a smoldering guy. So, like, when she's walking down the aisle and I'm seeing her for the first time, I'm just, like, like so tightly trying to control my face, like, not to get emotional. Because if I cry, then she cries, and it messes up her makeup, and it messes up my makeup. I mean, her makeup. And, yeah, it just wasn't good. And I managed to get through the whole thing without actually, like, bursting into tears, and so we go through the wedding and all that, and it was all good. And then uh, at the reception that evening, I remember I was talking to my best friend, Paul, who's uh, he's my best man in the wedding. And I told him, I was like, yeah, it was like the weirdest thing. Like, while she was walking down the aisle, my forehead was tingling. Like, almost like when you, like, your arm or your leg, your foot falls asleep. You know, that, like, tingling, like, pins and needles feel. Like, my whole forehead was, like, tingling. I'm like, it was so weird. He's like, yeah, you were about to pass out. I was like, what now? 
which Paul was pre-med at the time, or not pre-med, he was in medical school at the time. And so he's like, oh, dude, you were hyperventilating. I could hear you. You were like... (laughs) He's like, you were trying so hard, like, to control your breathing, but he's like, you were breathing hard. And he's like, he's like, I had, like, set my base ready to catch you, because he's like, I was almost guaranteed you were going to pass out. But he's like, but you didn't. He's like, yeah, so, like, that tingling, like, that was you not having enough oxygen in your body because you were hyperventilating. I'm like, oh, okay. But see, it was a big day to me, because I knew this was a big relationship I was entering into, And so it's similar uh, because, I mean, this is often what we do. Like whenever we enter into a relationship with God, we treat our commitment with Jesus uh, almost, uh, almost like we're dating. We're almost like a gym membership. Like at the very beginning, it's like we're all excited about going to the gym and yeah, I'll fill out all the paperwork and pay my dues and that stuff like that. But then once it's over, it's like, I, I mean, it doesn't really matter if I go. They're still getting their money. So what do they care whether I go? And we treat our relationship with God like that, where it's like, no, like once I, once I pay my dues, get baptized, give my heart to the Lord, whatever, then what happens after that, like, doesn't matter as much. Because I'm a member, right? Like my name's on the roster. All that matters is that I'm a member, not that I actually go to the gym and work out and actually make use of that. But what if we did that on our wedding day? What if, like, in my vows to Lindsay, I'm like, hey, sweetie, I promise to do the absolute bare minimum to stay married to you. Like, I promise. Like, I love you, girl. <laughs> absolute bare minimum. Like, if I, like, asked her that, like, okay, what's the least I need to do for us to stay together? Like, no girl swoons over that. Like, that's not, that's not how that works. There's going to be problems in that relationship almost right off the bat. And so we're picking up in this story in Exodus where... Uh, the people of Israel are about to enter into relationship with God in a way that uh, is kind of taking it to the next level. It's kind of a, a whole new experience that they ha- than they've had previously. So uh, we're picking up in Exodus 19 verses 1 through 6. Uh, says this, On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, so this is like three months after uh, they had come out of Egypt. On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai after they set out from Rephidim. They entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You uh, yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So this is the context. And see, this is really, really important because it's easy for us to quote scriptures or take scriptures and pull them out of their context. And it's really easy to make them mean almost anything we want them to mean. But when you read them in the context, realizing the story that is actually going on, uh, it it can color and, and shape how you understand a particular text. And so we're seeing the giving of the Ten Commandments, because this is what's about to happen. On Sinai, God is about to give them the Ten Commandments. That's kind of the, you know, those ten things that we, we all know what they are, and we've all heard them before, and maybe at some point, if you grew up in church, you memorized them at some point. Like, we know what those are, but often we hear that and we just think it's about just a list of rules that you're supposed to keep. It's about religion, like do these things or else. 
But we see in the context given here, first of all, God is reminding them of their history together. Like, notice the language here. He says, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Like, they have a shared history. He even calls them, when he refers to them as a whole people, he refers to them as the descendants of Jacob. Because he says, this whole thing is not a brand new thing. This started back with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this is just a continuing relationship that began back then. So there's no coercion. There's no convincing necessary. You don't have to convince me as the God of the universe to love you or to be for you or not against you. Because I've already made that decision a long time ago. I'm already for you. And so he sets the context in verse 5, Exodus 19.5. He says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now, oftentimes we hear a sentence like that, and for some of us, we're like, yeah, that's what I thought it was going to be. All right, I'm out. We hear the word obedience, and nowadays we don't like the word obedience. We hear the word obedience, and it's like, no, it's an immediate turnoff. Because now for some people in the room, if you're kind of an inherent rule follower, you're like, yeah, bro, just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. I just need to know the right thing to do and I'll do my best to do it. But for many of us in our society, most people feel like this is all that religion is. Rule keeping. Do these things to be accepted. Toe the line. Follow the rules or else I shall smite thee verily. But see, this isn't the tone or the context in which God says this. If you look at the story as a whole... That's not what God is saying here. He's invoking their history that has been going on for centuries. And so oftentimes we read texts like this and we think it's referring to like, hey, these are the house rules that you got to abide by if you want to stay here. But that's not what he's saying. You see, these aren't so much, you know, this, what we're reading here isn't so much in the context of house rules as it is in covenant vows, marriage vows, See, both sides are giving vows to keep their side of the covenant as they live in relationship together. See, the Ten Commandments showed us that God invites us to a relationship with responsibility, not a contract with compliance. And this helped shape, in some ways, the role of rules in the spiritual life. Because it's not about me complying with God's just like, all right, I put a bunch of rules on the wall and you have to keep them or else I'm going to, you know, smash you. You know, if we want to stay good with God, we need to toe the line. But see, these are responsibilities that come with living in daily covenant with God every single day. In fact, what's interesting, I was reading about a scholar was talking about this idea that uh, actually, if you look in Exodus 20, nowhere do they even use the word commandment. Now, it may say that the Ten Commandments in the heading of your Bible, but the actual text, they never use the word commandment. They use the word words. These are the words you are to speak. There are some scholars who even say that we shouldn't call them the Ten Commandments. We should call them the Ten Words because they are the Ten Descriptions of what life in relationship with God is supposed to look like. Now, don't get me wrong. They are commands. They are imperative statements given by God that we're supposed to, you know, how we live or not live. In fact, I even uh, heard someone say once that much of the world's problems stem from the breaking of these Ten Commands. In fact, someone even asked the question that if you were to remove every news story, either in your news app or on the nightly news or however you get your news, if you were to remove every news story that had some one way or another to do with the breaking of one of these Ten Commands, there would almost be no news stories at all. Because all of them in one way have come back to this 
at the end of the day. See, these commands are very specific and very purposed for Israel as a people in covenant relationship with God. They needed these ten words very desperately at the core of their relationship with God. And here's why. They needed to relearn what it meant to be human again. Again, it's all about context, the context of the story. Israel had spent 400 years, four centuries. That's almost twice as long as our nation has even existed. They spent that long in Egyptian slavery, feeling hopeless and aimless. And so you can imagine they're, you know, after coming out of four centuries of slavery, they are willing to cling to anything to find any kind of respite or any kind of rest. And, we, you know, the, the joke I hear often is like, man, the Israelites, like, the smallest hard thing happens, and they're like, all right, let's go back to Egypt. Like, let's go back to slavery. I'm done with this freedom thing. Let's go back to slavery. And, like, we make fun of them. Like, man, why do they go, why do they give up so easily? But the truth is, we all do this. When we encounter hardship, when we encounter problems, we go back to what we know. We go back to what is comfortable, even if what is comfortable might not be good for us, even if what is familiar might be slavery. We find comfort in in, uh, familiarity, even if it's bad for us. For some of you, it's smoking or drinking heavily or overeating some of you, it's a toxic relationship. You try to live, stand on your own two feet and do things on your own terms, but as soon as things go hard, you want to return back to this toxic relationship. Our kids do this in all different kinds of ways. Whenever they're little, they bite their nails or they uh, suck their thumbs or they grab for their blankies because those are the things they want to hold on to that give them comfort, that even if it's maybe a bad habit, they still want to grab a hold of it. And so these different behaviors in our lives are the spiritual equivalent of you know, the blankie or the thumb sucking or the pacifier. We experienced that with one of our kids that, uh, I mean, literally from birth, one of our girls wanted nothing to do with a pacifier, just never wanted it, didn't need it, which was great. But the other one like lived and died by that thing. And it wasn't until like they were, we knew they were going to be getting ready to go in, this was a few years ago, they were getting ready to go into preschool. And still like, it was just like gold to her. Like she just could not function without it. And so first we tried to do like, okay, let's like wean her off it slowly and got her to down to where it's like, okay, only at night or like when we're driving in the car. But then we realized like, okay, this thing's not going away. Like I think we need to go cold turkey, cold, cold sturkey. That's, that's what I call it around my house. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go cold sturkey. And so we warned her for about two weeks. We told her, okay, coming up on this date in a week, in five days, in three days, it's, it's done. It's gone. And I remember the day that she took it away. She didn't fight, didn't fuss, didn't say anything. But that afternoon, she didn't nap either. And she never napped again. <laughs> I sometimes wonder, I don't know this for sure, but I sometimes wonder, like, is she punishing us? Like she's like, no, no, that's cool. Go ahead and take it. It's fine. Never going to nap again, though. Like, she's just never, ever, our other daughter napped for a while after that, but no, never, ever napped again. We refer to that event as Passygate 2017. <laughs> so God gives these 10 words, which were really just the foundation of really what all other the commandments are built on, ultimately. And they were meant not to re-enslave them to a new set of rules, but to set them free 
to remind them this, you have been treated as something less than human for so long that you need to be reminded what it means to be human again. So here, these things, live these out, and this is what it means to really be human. And I'll go through each one to, to explain what I mean. Because someone who is truly human worships only the one true God creator of heaven and earth, and they don't need a statue or an image. That's the second command. Worship the Lord your God. No graven images. They don't need any kind of statue or image uh, to represent that God because they themselves bear the image of God in themselves. They know that if you want to see the way it was supposed to be, if you want to see what God is like in the world, you look at a human being because we bear the image of God. Someone who is truly in love with God, who is truly human, doesn't misuse his name because they know as being image bearers of God, their words have power. And so we don't take the name of the Lord our God in vain because there's power behind it. It's the most important relationship they have. So it's always to be spoken with power and with reverence. This would be, and this is typical in marriage too, that we speak of the one that we're married to, that we love the most, always with reverence always with honor, never in derision, never in dishonor. Number four, someone who is truly human recognizes that they are a human being, not a human doing. Meaning that I am not a machine meant to just pump out productivity. And so I know that I sometimes in my life, I live in this rhythm and flow of work and rest. And I stop and enjoy the fruit of my labor and enjoy the good things of creation that God has given to me that I earn through my work and through my labor. The things I create and bring into my life, I get to enjoy those too. I'm not just about producing as much productivity as possible. So I rest on a regular basis. Someone who is truly human honors those who gave them life and raised them, that if I'm made in the image of God, that means my parents are made in the image of God, and I honor them by how I treat them, by how I speak to them, because they are image bearers of God as well. Someone who is truly human honors all human life from beginning to end is sacred because all human life is made in the image of God. They never interfere in another human's most intimate relationships, marriage specifically, because the covenant of marriage represents our relationship between us and God. And so we don't mess with that. We don't interfere with that. We don't disrupt that because that represents that relationship. We only speak the truth directly and fully. We are content in all that we do in our life, never comparing ourselves to others and on and on and on. Would you not want to know someone who lives like that all the time? Wouldn't you want to be like that? someone like that, who's like that all the time. See, these commandments were meant to show us this is what it means to be human. You've forgotten because you were in slavery. You were treated like a machine. You were treated subhuman for so long that God had to remind Moses and Israel that is the type of life you call to every day. Those are the responsibilities that were given in the context of relationship with God. Man, wouldn't it be amazing to be that type of person? Wouldn't it that type of person be amazing to have around. How would you describe an entire nation of people who lived like that, who talked like that, and acted like that, and lived like that in every single way? Well, you'd call them a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. See, that was the context in which God gave the law to his people. That is what he desired for every single one of his people when they were at the foot of Sinai. Was He wanted to show them what they were actually originally supposed to be. 
before the fall, that they were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be truly human. And so this is why, which we say this all the time, and I, and I say it sometimes too, and I've talked about this before. This is why I don't like it when people say, well, I'm only human. When I talk about subhuman behavior, like whenever I mess up or do something horrible or hurt people, I'm like, well, he's only human. Well, I'm only human, as if that excuses sinful behavior. But according to this, no. For me to be only human means that I'm an image bearer of God who lives how humans were created to be. So whenever I mess up, whenever I sin, when I hurt other people, when I break these commandments, I'm not being only human. I'm being less than human. Because that's what humans were, humans weren't supposed to live like that. If you want to know what a human was supposed to look like, I can tell you what they were supposed to look like. Jesus. He's the only person to live on this earth to be completely and absolutely 100% human, the way humans were meant to be. Because the truth is, Israel, even though they would receive these amazing commands, would make these vows with God, they would fail at it over and over and over. That's their story. If you read the Old Testament, that is their story over and over and over again. What was meant to be a relationship with responsibility turned into a contract with compliance where I feel like I just have to follow the rules because I don't want to get, you know, smitten by God because they wanted to be free. And of course, the way we often define freedom is it means I can do whatever I want whenever I want. Nobody gets to define what is right and wrong for me except me. But that's not what it means to be human. That's not what it means to be free. That is living less than human. But see, then God did the unthinkable. He became human himself in the person of Jesus Christ and came to earth to show us what it meant to be human. But not just to show us, not just to be an example that we're supposed to follow and keep failing at. No, he also made a way through a bloody cross and through an empty tomb so we could not just have an example, but actually have a way we could return to God have the righteousness of Christ put on us. And so then when God looks at us, he sees the one who is truly human, which is Jesus. Because left to ourselves, we will fail over and over and over again. See, he showed us that the role of rules is not meant to rule over us, but to release us from religious striving. See, like Darren said a few weeks ago, the most demonic teaching in the church is that you can be saved by being good. But if I just follow the rules and do basically more, bad, more good than bad, if I'm a good person, then that's good enough and I'll be able to go to heaven. But that's a lie. A lie that religion shoves down our throat over and over and over again. Because left to ourselves, we will always strive and fail, strive and fail over and over and over again. That was Israel's story. That's our story. That's my story. That's your story. And it's killing all of us and sending us to hell apart from Christ. See, God's commands, the teachings of Jesus are meant to show us the way back to the Father, which is only through what Christ, Christ did on the cross. Only by accepting that, by ha- being filled with the Holy Spirit, then we can be transformed by the inside out, not through our own striving, not through our own efforts, but instead surrendering ourselves to God, and the Spirit changes us to be to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then we follow His commands, not out of obligation, but out of surrender and love. And so now Jesus calls us to obey for different reasons. 
it's a responsibility that comes out of a relationship, not compliance from a contract. And Jesus even talks about this, John 15, verse 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, like get, get the progression here. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, because you may hear that like, obey my commands, stay in my love. Like, boy, that sounds like works-based salvation. But he says this, my command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. So he's saying, the love I got from the Father, I've given to you. Now that same love I got from the Father and given to you, now you're going to take that and just give it to other people. That's my command, is love one another. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down, their, lay down one, one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. See, once we view the covenant with God as a relationship with responsibilities rather than a contract with compliance, we realize that Jesus doesn't give conditional love. He gives commissioning love. He gives love that we receive and we send on to people that I'm not obeying because I'm just hoping that I'll be good enough to get in. But no, I've already been changed. I've already been declared through the cross, the beloved of God. And so now when I receive God's love freely, I can freely pass it on to those around me who need it most, freely and unconditionally. And if we began to live like that in the world, imagine how different the world would be. We would begin to look like exactly what Peter writes. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, He's talking about the church when he says this. Notice the similarity in language. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You notice the similarity in language? God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people of God, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so he's saying through Christ, we are now that new people that we have received, we've entered into this new covenant with Christ, and we get to live that out in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love that you freely give to us, this relationship, this covenant relationship that you invite us into. Every single one of us, no matter how far away we are from you, you invite us into it because you've already made the way through the cross so our sins can be forgiven and we can walk with you So God, as we uh, get ready to partake in the Lord's Supper, God, I pray that we would remember these marriage vows we've made to you. Because that's what the commandments are. They're marriage vows of saying, God, I love you so much. I can't help but want to live for you, to surrender my life for you because of what you've done for me. It's just a natural outflow. God, help us to live in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together in a few moments. We're going to sing a song, and I want to give you opportunity just to reflect a little bit on this, that maybe you have been in the church for a very long time, and you need to be reminded, almost like when you've been married for a while, you need to watch the wedding video every once in a while to be reminded of the vows you made, what you experienced that day, the relationship you were entering into, and and remind yourself, "Am am I really living fully in that? Or have I just kind of done the done the the gym membership and just let it kind of sit there and I'm not even engaged in it. 
There may, may be some of you in the room that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never entered into that relationship. You've never made those covenant vows. And this morning can be the time that you can do that. During this time as we reflect, if you've not grabbed the communion elements, they're on the tables back there. During their song, you're welcome to go back and grab them if you want to. But you can ask Jesus into your life and say, man, I, sur I surrender my life to you. I can't pay for my own sins. I can't make my own way to God, but I need you, Jesus, to be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. I want to commit myself, almost like marriage vows, commit myself to you and to follow you, Jesus, to receive the love you've received from the Father so that I can take that same commissioning love out into the world. So I, I welcome you to the table. Jesus welcomed everyone to the table. So if you name the name of Jesus here, whether you're a member of our church or not, if you love Jesus Christ, if you are serving and following him, you are welcome to the table. So let's take a moment to reflect and then I'll come back up. Hold on to the elements and we'll take them together.
talked about the formation of the old covenant this morning in Exodus 19 and 20, but what we're celebrating right now is a new covenant that Jesus made. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Take and eat it in remembrance of me. And then later that evening, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood poured out for you for the new covenant, this new thing that God is doing, that even though the old covenant was good in so many ways, this is something, entire, whole different dimension, so much better. Take it and drink it. And the scriptures say that every time we drink of, eat the bread and drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns, expecting, almost crying out for him to return and come and get us. And is the, at the end of the age. The language that's used for his return is a wedding celebration. That everything will finally be consummated to what God intended it to be and we will be fully what God created us to be. We will be like Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that day. And so until that day comes, I'm going to keep serving Jesus and loving him, receiving the love of the Father and then passing it on, taking that commissioning love, not to earn God's love, but receiving it because I know it's already been given to me freely through Christ, amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you, God, that you poured out your love without measure on Jesus and it was given to us through Jesus. Help us to live as full humans this week, not subhuman, fully human, image bearers of God that look like his son, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Happy Father's Day.
Good morning, everyone. Welcome to New Hope Church. Why don't you stand up and sing with us?
praise God. Let's just praise him this morning. You guys, he reigns. He reigns. I'll tell you what, I think a lot of times I want me to reign. And God's really been showing me that lately. It's not about me. It's not about me reigning in my own life. It's about letting him reign in my life. That is not easy because we're human and we want to control and we want to decide what happens. But God reigns. I was reading a scripture this week that talked about um, God won't let us be tempted beyond what we can handle. And the next part I love, it says, and he will provide a way out. He will. I think a lot of times we think we have to provide the way out. We have to figure it out. And I feel like I've been a Christian for the long, for a long time, but I'm learning that it's about surrender. It's not about me figuring it out. When things are going through my mind, maybe that I know are not from God, or when I'm tempted by things that I know that God wouldn't be pleased with, and I struggle. I mean, I look back on some of my journals and I think, man, I struggled with the same things 20 years ago, um, especially with worry and things of that sort. And I'm like learning that I have to say, God, I can't do this. I can't get myself out of this, but you can. And that surrender that I need your strength when I'm weak. And there's such freedom in that. And there's such power in that. So I just want to encourage you today. I don't know what that might be for you. I don't know if that's an addiction or that's just a, a mind that constantly gets dragged down or constantly worries or um, what that might be, relationship issues. But to surrender and to put your hands up and say, God, I can't do it, but I need you. You can. You reign. I want you to reign in my life and in this situation and to invite him in. So I just want to encourage you guys with that this morning. You can um, be seated. I'm going to just pray really quick. Father, we just thank you, God, that you reign. We thank you that you are the Lord above everything, everything in our world, everything in our lives, everything in our minds, God, that you reign and we can trust you. God, we surrender to you this morning. Whatever those things are, God, we hold our hands open and say, please take it, God, because I can't do it on my own. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a couple announcements for you this morning. We are currently in the middle of our baby bottle fundraiser, which is something that we do every year. It started on Mother's Day, and a, a lot of you may have grabbed a baby bottle um, to fill with change. And all of these proceeds go to the Family Life Center. This is an organization that we partner with. They're a wonderful organization our community, in our community doing just great things. And so we wanted to remind you guys that next week, which is Father's Day, is when we ask you to return those bottles full of your change. So set a reminder on your phone. And don't forget to bring those back. And all of that money goes directly towards the Family Life Center and to help the people that they are helping. The other thing is that tonight is our first Sunday in Shelbyville on the second Sunday, because that's just how it worked out. And it, so those of you that are making Shelby, planning on making the Shelbyville campus your home, or maybe some of you who just want to go check it out, we invite you to join us tonight in Shelbyville at Spruce Street Studios from 6 to 7. We'll have 
child care and worship and the message just like we do here. Um, so we're looking forward to that. So with that, we'll move on with the service. Good morning and welcome to New Hope. Whether you're joining us on campus or worshiping with us online, we are so thankful that you've chosen to spend part of your weekend here with us. And if you're new to New Hope, we'd love to hear from you. You can fill out a Connect card in the New Hope app or by visiting newhopechurch.cc slash connectcard. You can also stop by the Connect Center after service. We'd love to meet you and answer any questions you might have. We wanted to remind you that we're hosting Sturkey's Burger Bash today from 11 to 1 at 180. After service today, make sure your lunch plans include heading to 180 for some burgers, hot dogs, pork burgers, and milkshakes. All donations given for lunch will go toward helping lower the costs for the Mission Indy team members. So be sure to join us for some delicious food for a great cause today from 11 to 1. If you haven't heard, we're excited to share that we're hiring a couple key positions at the Effingham and Shelbyville campuses. We're currently accepting applications for a full-time high school team leader at our Effingham campus and either a part-time worship leader or a full-time worship and youth director for our Shelbyville campus. If you're passionate and qualified for either of these positions and you'd like to learn more and apply, you can do so by visiting newhopechurch.cc jobs. We're asking that all resumes are submitted by next Sunday, June 20th, so make sure you go online and check that out. Lastly, we want to take a moment to continue in worship through the giving of our tithes and offering. It's because of your faithful generosity that we are able to reach even more people in our communities and further our vision of seeing a greater movement of Jesus in each new generation. While we aren't passing a bucket in person, you can give in the back of the auditorium, online at newhopechurch.cc give or by mail. Thank you so much for joining us for service and be sure to connect with us at newhopechurch.cc and on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date with everything happening here at New Hope. Good morning, guys. Um, in 1987, my wife, Lori, and I had this nudging or kind of a leading from God to open this store in Vienna, Georgia. And we had this idea, well, Christian bookstore slash gift shop slash country store. And I, I remember there was a few glaring problems. Number one, Lori and I had no, we were super young, no business experience whatsoever. Number two, we had no capital whatsoever. Number three, we had no real unique product or talent to open a store with. And then number four, we didn't have any family nearby or any close friends nearby because if we did, they would have told us, you are absolutely crazy. But somehow, 1987, we opened the store and scrapped together some stuff. Uh, we found this building to rent. This is a small town. There's one stoplight, two crossroads, and we only had enough money to rent a building that was kind of down an alley. The location was horrible. Uh, my dad happened to find a sign. He had a sign maker in his church down in Florida, so we had a nice sign. We had probably $700 worth of retail product, you know, that either we made or we purchased. Um, and there was a bell. The, the building came with the bell on the door so you knew if a customer came in. And I remember that first day, about halfway in the day, that bell rang. And a customer, a husband and wife, stepped in. We didn't know them, and they stepped into the store. 
And it was such an awkward moment. I don't know if I mentioned that it was a very small store, maybe 10 by 14, and then there was another little room next to it. And I, I don't know if I mentioned, but Lori was like eight months pregnant. You know, so here they are stepping into the store, and I just saw the shock come over their face. Like, what what have we stepped into here? You know, it was kind of like, you know, you could try to, they're trying to figure out what do we do now? What happens? You know, and as I'm looking around the room, I realize there is very little product here. Even though it's a small room, there's hardly anything here for sale. And it was just such an awkward moment. I wish I could say that after they left, I had my first dollar bill that I could post on the wall, but we got nothing from them. You know, there was probably nothing to buy. And probably somewhere throughout the years, this couple has told this story many times that, we were in this store one time, and we stepped in. Here was this pregnant lady and this guy, and it was the most hideous thing we've ever saw. But um, it was crazy. If odds makers might, if they might have been, you know, generous, they might have given us a million to one. But we had this leading from God, and the, and the store made it. Went over 25 years. Ended up being on the very central building, right on this, on the very corner lot. Was very successful for about 25 years, and uh, and and God moved in that situation. But and this is the word I kind of struggled with as I looked at this. When that couple stepped in, and all we had was the word of God, it was what I'd like to term a bare moment, where you just felt just totally exposed. You felt bare. You felt completely unqualified. You felt like your whole past was before you. It was just a, a bare, raw moment. And we want to talk about that through this message in the next few moments, about those bare moments. Uh, I, I remember in high school, as I took a stand before for God in front of my friends, that was a bare moment. Same way in college, a bare moment. I, I stand up here this morning in kind of a bare moment. My dad uh, passed away Friday, and uh, we went through, we've gone through about nine days of just a, a whirlwind, and it's just one of these times I'm stepping up here. It's kind of a bare moment, and I could have called up some, one of the other guys would have filled in for me at a drop of the hat, but I just felt like to honor my dad, I need to be up here this morning. My dad was like the ever-ready bunny, never quit. And uh, two days before he died, we were up at Carl. There was four, four nurses in there. And my dad says, I've counseled you. I've counseled you. I've counseled you. Honey, I haven't talked to you yet. You know, and they all said, yeah, he's prayed with us and talked to us. And we're looking at Moses, the man. And my dad would say, yeah, look at Moses. He's he is an individual that learned to hear God's voice and walk with God. And he would tell these nurses, you have a destiny. You have a purpose. You have a call. You need to know Jesus because he's got something for you. God's not done with you yet. And dad was just, he was just preaching to these nurses to, to the very end. And, and I just feel impelled just as we look at Moses just to exhort you in those things here this morning. We began the series last week. Tyler did an incredible message. If you haven't heard it, Get it online, listen to it from baskets to burning bushes. And God, uh, last week, uh, Tyler talked about this. God had talked to Moses. Just a small little mission. You know, I've got about a couple million of your relatives that have been in slavery 430 years under the most powerful nation on this planet, led by one of the most powerful leaders the planet has ever seen who's who person the most educated society the most scientific society you need to tell pharaoh to let your people go 
And so that was the mission that Moses had. And uh, so he's moving these people out of slavery. And um, two quotes that Tyler made, I, I just wanted to put up there. Number one, there's a big difference between willingness and readiness. A lot of times in our life, we're willing, God, I'll serve you. You make it happen. But there's a big difference between willingness and readiness. Uh, the other quote I really liked is, our competencies can hinder our ability to do God's will. It doesn't, it doesn't say, don't ever try to be competent, don't ever try to improve yourself, don't ever seek God, God will just make it happen. But Moses, at age 40, you know, he kind of had this inkling that God was going to use him, and he tried to go in his own power and murder someone. And God spent 40 years preparing him for what was ahead. And that was a great message last week on timing. Let's start with uh, Exodus 4, 5, 1 through 5. You guys out there, just kind of say just want to make sure there's life in you. Okay, that's good. I see some hands waving there. Let's begin Exodus 4, 1 through 5. And it's interesting is Moses' communication with God didn't stop at that burning bush. I'm amazed. I've talked to homeless people. I've talked to people all over. And I've, I've talked to a lot of people that have had kind of burning bush experiences where some way God kind of speaks to them and they know God's in that. But it stops there. But he began this dialogue. He knew God could speak, and he starts leaning into God. They start having conversations. So we, we, we catch up on this one, Exodus 4, 1 through 5. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? And the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? And there's Moses, you know, kind of probably leaning, leaning on this stick or the staff. And he says, uh, he, uh, a staff. He says, I got a staff in my hand. And, and God says, throw it to the ground. So he threw it to the ground. And as he threw it to the ground, it became a snake. And what do you do when you see a snake? You move away. It said he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Now, if you've ever read that book, uh, Picking Up Snakes 101, you don't, you don't pick up a serpent. Now, you know, a python, you might get his attention, but you don't pick up snakes from the tail, you know. So anyway, he reaches and picks it back up, and it turns back into a stick. And uh, this, said the Lord, is what they can see and believe. Maybe that he picks up a snake from the tail and doesn't get bit. Maybe he thinks that's the miracle. Um, and that, that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And what's kind of interesting, this is kind of like a James Bond moment or Batman moment. You know, you know how before they start their mission, you know, he gets the Austin Martin that shoots missiles, you know, or he gets the, the Rolex watch that can, you know, do incredible things, send out waves to, you know, confound radars and stuff like this, or he gets a jet pack, but God just says, hey, you got a stick. So there was something, you know, something left out. I, you know, I would say, God, something more, but he had the stick. And so we read on uh, Exodus uh, 4.10. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. So he began saying, God, there's some problems here. And he was well acquainted with uh, Pharaoh's court and what was ahead. And he said, I, I kind of am not the best at public speaking. And do you know what the number one fear is among people today? Public speaking. 
So that's where, that would relate to a lot of us. A lot of us aren't good at public speaking. Uh, number two is heights. Number three are spiders and snakes. And uh, clowns is still in the top ten, but I don't know if you know this, but it lost its ranking over the last two years. Zombies have moved ahead of clouds. So, so just, just, you know, that's just some extra stuff. Uh, we read on this conversation. God gets kind of upset. He spent 40 years preparing for this. And, and so in the very next verse, Exodus 4, 14, then the Lord's anger burned. I put down my stick. And it didn't turn into a snake, by the way. Uh, The Lord's anger burned against Moses and said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak with him and put words in his mouth. I will help you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if you were his mouth and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. So now... He's not just alone. Now there are two old men and a stick going to see Pharaoh, you know. And his brother's 83. Moses is 80, and they're off to see Pharaoh. I mean, this is kind of a weird picture, and I just want to throw one more scripture in there, Exodus 4.20. It says, so Moses took his wife and sons, put them on donkeys, and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand just add that to the picture a lot of people you know we run into this you still have to go through life when he got to egypt he was going to have to put his boys in school and sign them up he was going to have to you know get them in t-ball and probably coach t-ball and so often when we serve god we still have to raise our children we still have to be good husbands we have to be good wives we still have to mow the yard all this stuff that's in the background while he's delivering two million people out of slavery before the greatest ruler of all time so so here they are uh they stop off to get a little encouragement from the hebrew people because god's sending them to set the hebrew people free exodus 6 9 through 12 moses reported this to the israelites but they did not listen to him because of the discouragement and harsh labor then the, you know, isn't this a great moment? I'm going to get with my brethren. They're going to encourage me. They're going to get excited because God has sent me to set them free. They didn't even listen to them. And the Moses said, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I am speeding with faltering lips? So it's a, this is really a bare moment. You know, Moses knew about Pharaoh's court. He knew about walking into the throne room, probably a lot of gold, you know, a lot of soldiers there. It was a show when you showed up before Pharaoh, and you didn't just show up empty-handed. I mean, you would come with music, dancers, jugglers, maybe a couple lions in cages, and when you came in, you know, they'd read your name, King of Ethiopia, and they'd come in and all this stuff. And when you showed up before Pharaoh, you better have something in your hand. You better have a real cool box, and when you open it up, rubies fall out. Or you better show up with a lot of bars of gold to have an audience. And this is what, this is the moment that Moses was well aware of. It was a bare moment. He's, he's showing up with his older brother, 83, and they have a piece of wood. They have a stick. 
And I imagine as they read the list, it was kind of like the reader probably said, how did he get on this list? And why isn't there any music? And everything was quiet. And you saw these two old men coming in, you know, down that long aisle. And they show up with a stick. Well, Moses throws down the stick. And it becomes a snake. And all of a sudden, the Egyptian magicians show up. And they say, wow, that's one of, we, we've got a good snake trip too. So they did their enchantments and their little magical stuff. And they threw down snakes. But Moses' rod ate up all their snakes. Moses picked it by the tail. And Pharaoh was not impressed at all. You know, my grandpappy's, your grandpappy's grandpappy, you know, you know, was a servant to my grandpappy's grandpappy. You're, you're nothing. It, it just, it was a non-moment. It's almost as if there's this pre-heavyweight photo op and, and uh, it was a non-moment. But God is fixing to judge Pharaoh because of his pride, because of his stubbornness, because of his arrogance. And there's going to be 10 rounds. He's going to go head to head with Moses who's representing God and each one of the plagues judge one of the gods that the Egyptians worship now we're not going to take time to look at each one of the gods but it's in there we could could spend another hour I'll save you an hour by just just telling you that round one (coughs) it's blood next day God says take the stick reach it out touch the Nile River they worship the Nile River it was a life it was a life to that nation and Pharaoh's out there he touched the Nile River and it turned into blood well the Egyptian magicians jumped up and says hey we can turn water into blood and they did their little enchantments and boom the water turned into blood but the blood in that water that Moses started went all over Egypt I mean, it went into the jars, the jugs. You know, Pharaoh asked, can I have my Fuji water bottle? And the next thing, it was blood. You know, he, he went home and, and uh, started to get in the hot tub. And it was, it was filled with blood. And the fish died. And then all of a sudden, that plague was over. And Moses just, I mean, Pharaoh just hardened his heart. Round two, it was frogs. And, of course, they have a god that has a body of a man with the head of a frog that was one of the gods they worshiped and it says frogs came teeming up out of the Nile River and the fish had already died that stink was just abating this took place a little under a year all 10 rounds took place a little under a year so these frogs come up and they are all over teams of frogs they're in houses they're in you know they're in your bathroom they're in your shoe closet they're in your bed they're just all over and and uh and and then they die and there's frog heaps just dead rotten smelling round three moses takes his staff that piece of wood just that simple piece of wood touches the dust and it turns to gnats and they just cover the land. It's in everyone, everyone's eyes, ears, nose. Have you ever been around sand gnats? They bite. They can go through a screen. A screen won't stop. It's just, just itchy. And so it was, it was a miserable time. The Egyptian uh, magician stopped, jumped forward to do something and show their enchantments. But they couldn't make gnats. And they said, Pharaoh, this might be something more than we can do. Pharaoh didn't listen and moved on. The next plague that shows up are flies. And they say great dense swarms of flies show up. But something happened different on this plague. 
Before, the gnats were all over, the frogs were all over. Now the flies were just on that nation of Egypt. But Goshen, where the slaves lived, was, they were flightless. There was no flies. You'd walk through that wall of flies when you got to Goshen, and it stopped. And this time, Pharaoh text messaged Moses and says, get rid of the flies. Moses said, I do, but you've got to let my people go. And then after the flies disappeared, Pharaoh steps back. It's interesting that Belzebub, which is another name for Satan, means Lord of the Flies. That also means mosquitoes, and I believe it. You know, uh, Romans 5, the, uh, and I'm sorry, round 5, not Romans 5, but round 5, the livestock start dropping over dead. That's the plague. Horses, donkeys, camels, cattle, sheep, and goat, they begin to fall over dead. But again, the rest of the plague, this doesn't happen in Goshen, where the Hebrew people are, are, live as slaves. Um, he text messages Pharaoh again and he says, hey, you know, got to stop this. We're going to lose all of our wildlife, all of our, our herds and stuff. So Moses stops that plague. And, of course, Pharaoh's saying, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do something. But then after the plague stops, he said, no, 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 we're not going to do anything. It's kind of interesting. They did worship this bull. The Egyptians had this bull that was treated better than almost any, any Egyptian official. I mean, he, the bull had his own house, it, it had his own pedicures, had his own food, had his back rubbed and scratched every night. It was just, it's just crazy. And at some point in one of these plagues here, most likely that bull that they worshipped fell over dead. Next round was boils. Great festering bulls showed up on people's noses, their foreheads, their neck, their back, their rear ends, on their feet. They said they couldn't walk. And it was also on their pets or cats or dogs or gerbils or cockatiels. Everybody had boils. And, and again, you know, Pharaoh speed dialed Moses on this one. Got to get rid of these bulls. This is horrible. And so Moses, and he says, yeah, 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 I'll take care of this slavery thing. I'll, I'll let y'all go and I'll, I'll work something out. So he got rid of the bulls. And then he said, no, 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 let's don't mess with it. Round seven, hailstorm. Moses shows up and he says, this time tomorrow, there's going to be a hailstorm. Um, and it's going to be the worst that Israel's ever seen. You know, you need to make sure no one's in the field. And some of the Egyptians then said, hey, get all the animals, all the slaves, everyone out of the field. But the people that left stuff out in the field, they were killed. But all this doesn't happen in Goshen. God still protect them. And again, you know, during the hailstorm, uh, he FaceTimes Moses and said, hey, man, lightning in the background. Hey, you get, and, and there's, there's Moses standing, perfect weather in Goshen. He's saying, I don't know what's happening over here, but we have a hailstorm. Stop this. I'll let your people go. Yeah, 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 I'll do it. Hailstorm stops and Moses, Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. Round eight, um, locusts. The ground turns black. You can't even see the ground. Locusts are just over everything. It's just like, just, and they ate everything that was left over. Pharaoh again quickly calls and he says, yeah, 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 we'll take care of your people. Let them go. We'll do that. And then when locusts are gone, Pharaoh says, no, 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 we're not going to let them go. Round nine, total darkness. Do you know who the God of the sun was in Egypt at that time? Pharaoh himself. The Pharaoh was the God of the sun. He was the light of Egypt. And it was dark, total darkness for three days. And the reason why it's three days is Pharaoh couldn't even find his phone to call Moses and so it was dark for three days before he found his phone 
He, he tried from his shoe, it, a lot of things he tried, but finally found his phone. And so it was dark for three days. And Pharaoh finally got to the place. I'm tired of seeing you. I don't want to see you again, Moses. He just told him that. And the knockout round comes in the 10th round. And I want to let you know it's sad what our pride will do. It's sad when we're stubborn. I think I've been there times. Have you been there sometimes where you say, God, if you solve this problem, if you get me out of this problem, I'll do this for you. Have, has anyone else done that? Kind of plead with God? And, and we think, well, this is so crazy that nine times over a period of year, God's trying to get Pharaoh's attention and he just gets a stubborn heart. But so often we live with that stubborn, selfish heart. And the knockout round of all things is the death of the firstborn of all children, of all parents, of all animals. And one thing we need to understand, we don't have pride into ourselves. We aren't stubborn to ourselves, but it will affect our family. It will cost other people their lives. Even in believers, sometimes if we're stubborn, if we don't do what God's called us to do, it will cost lives. People will not be reached. But there is one provision. And Moses told this to the children of Israel. He says, if you'll find a spotless lamb and kill that lamb, offer it to God and take the blood. And on the wooden, there's wood again, on the wooden doorpost, put that blood, the head, the sides, and the bottom. If you'll do that, the angel of death will pass over you. And that's where the term Passover comes from, is that angel of death passed over because there was blood on the wood of the doorpost. It's interesting that for 1,500 years, every Passover, the lamb would be sacrificed, and they put blood on the wood in the form of a cross every year for 1,500 years. And when Jesus showed up, they didn't recognize that the lamb of God had come, the true firstborn. So there's two points I want to make here, just in closing, is... Pharaoh, throughout his life, hung on to his pride. He hung on to his stubbornness. He hold on, held on to his self-made uh, kingdom. He was the, yeah, yeah, I'll do something about it, but never did anything about it. He never dealt with those things. He never, ever found that he had a destiny and a purpose that God wanted to move in his life. He kept God out of his life. And then, in contrast, Moses hung obeyed God and he hung he hung on to the stick that's all he had but he hung on to the stick and followed God into bare moments and I want to tell you when we follow God we will have bare moments when it's just us maybe in a stick and nothing else but we got to not be afraid I, I remember in high school there were several times even in college there were several times that I didn't want to let people know that I was a Christian because that would be such a bare moment to stand before, you know, the cool kids or the cool crowds and, and, and to have them know I was a believer, you know. And there's those bare moments in life. There's those times God asks you to do stuff big in yourself, but Moses responded. Our last scripture is 1 Corinthians 1.18, and I, I want to read this, and I, I think it's real appropriate. For the message of the cross, well, what's a cross made out of? would is foolishness to those who are perishing but to those that are being saved it is the power 
of God. And that's how we're called to walk through life. And, and we might not like it. We would like some more cool articles. We, hey, I want some treasuries. I want some gold. I want some silver. I want some power. I want some incredible intellect. And, and we're called to take up our cross daily. And that's what God's called us to do as his people, is to obey him and follow him just like Moses, just like David, just like Isaiah, just like Peter, just like Paul, just like Timothy. They obeyed God. And that is what I want to encourage us today to do. Amen. Let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this, your presence. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we will honor you, that we will take up that piece of wood, that cross that's stained with your blood and obey you in the days ahead, in the journey that you want to take us on. In Jesus' name, and they all said, amen.
Let's stand you guys up just for a second. Let's give it, you can do better than that. Woo! Amen. Amen. I'll, I'll tell you, God, God is not done yet. And uh, there's an adventure. Uh, I always think of that scripture. Jesus said, greater things than these shall you do. Because I go to my father. He's looking for people that will journey with him. Uh, my dad was always an interesting person because I remember many times he would get in something or God would lead him to do something. I would sit there as a kid thinking, oh, no way, Dad. You should leave this alone or that. This will never work. And, and I would see God show up time and time again. Sometimes there were mistakes and stuff like that. But, you know, it was just so cool to see. And I knew that God was real. And it says that in that stick, in that cross, in that verse, is in that stick is the power of of God, the power of God. When we die and we get under the blood of Jesus, we start to get transformed. And that's where life gets good. But I just want to encourage you, just like Moses, as he started dialoguing with God and obeying God, there was an adventure that the Hebrew people still talk about to this day. And God's going to venture for you like that as well. Start dialoguing with God. Not, don't be afraid to say, hey, I'm not good at this. I don't know what to do, but I'm still going to move forward and just have that dialogue and see in the coming days. It might take 40 more years, but God's got something good for you.
need prayer, I'm going to hang around here up front and uh, maybe a few other people come down here just to, to pray with you. But if you need prayer, I'd be glad to pray with you. You're free to go. God bless. Hey, lady.